Well, that's not. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me a little bit when I talk about Genesis 1 because I always get this close to committing blasphemy. <laughs> like that close. And today especially, I'm going to walk right up to that line because I want to talk about Genesis 1 as a writer and talk about it as part of a story. And some people get really nervous when I do that, especially some of our brothers and sisters in other churches. But bear with me, because... All right, now I'm getting threatened with violence. I'm not sure if I feel comfortable. Um, we'll come back to violence, though. That's a preview. Um, but if you study writing and literature, you learn that there are certain rules that, whether you're talking about history or poetry, fiction or nonfiction, the rule still applies. And the first rule, and the one I'll be spending all of today talking about, is... Beginnings are really important. Really, really important. Uh, first impressions, as anyone who's given you interview advice or anyone who's been in an interview will tell you, matter a lot. And so the beginning of a story is your first impression with the reader. It tells you how to read the rest of the story or book, uh, what the tone is, who the characters are, what the problem is, and what the themes the book's going to be talking about are. For example, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. I got to quote Harry Potter in a sermon. I'm happy with myself. <laughs> but you can get a lot of what comes up seven books later in those two lines. We get... The universe is boring and mundane, and there's some other world that's connected to it. These people who value mundanity and the appearance of order are going to be a problem. And while I wouldn't say that later on that might be an understatement, but the valuing of order over difference is definitely a thing that comes up later on in Harry Potter. A shorter example that maybe more of you know, maybe not, I don't know how many of you might have heard this one, is... As Gregor Samsa awoke from a night of uneasy dreaming, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. That's the whole book. That's, that's all of metamorphosis. You can skip the existentialism. A guy turns into a bug and is sad. There. You don't have to read Kafka ever again. I don't know if, that, I don't know if that's a blessing for some of you or a curse. For me, it would have been a blessing. Um... On the longer end of things, I'll read a portion of this because it is a paragraph that is a sentence. And this one, I hope you know, bonus points if you guess it before I finish, which will be a while. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had, every, we had nothing before us. We're all going direct to heaven. We're all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Dickens' Tale of Two Cities opens with one sentence that runs half a page. But in that sentence, we do get everything the book will be about. It is a time of extremes. We have two cities, London and Paris, that have reversed fortunes. That's what the power of beginnings have. 
And if we get closer to when Genesis is written, we get more explicit beginnings. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forced dark, for the straightforward path had been lost, is how Dante begins his divine comedy. Being lost in a forest, searching for faith and direction is the entire comedy. And then right up against Genesis is something that begins with the line, Sing goddess Achilles' rage, black and murderous. And again, you can now read the entire Iliad knowing that it's about an angry man who kills lots of people. Again, that's basically the whole Iliad. So then what do we do with that op our opening line? In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Because it is our opening line. If someone was to go and buy a Bible and decide to read it, that's the first thing they're going to read. They're not going to read the Garden of Eden. They're not going to read Matthew's genealogy. They're not going to read Revelations. They're not going to read Paul or Chronicles or Elisha. This is the story that is the introduction to our faith. So, what does it mean? What do we do with it then? Well, Genesis isn't in a vacuum as a beginning of the universe either. There are other traditions that say how the universe began, and it usually tells us about how that culture thought of the world. I've read some Norse mythology, for example, and their opening creation begins with three brothers treacherously killing what might be their grandfather, cutting him up, and making the universe out of his bones, which is pretty gruesome. Uh, and also very typical of Viking stories where the ending is usually some variation of, and then everyone died. Usually horribly, sometimes involving fire. Um, Shakespeare has nothing on his elders. If you read a Viking myth and it doesn't end with lots of bodies, you're probably reading someone's Welsh mythology they relabeled. It's much nicer in Wales. They don't kill as many people. And right next to Genesis, right next to Israel, is Babylon. And in the Bible, we have mixed feelings. No, we don't. We don't like Babylon, symbolically speaking. And the Babylonians have a similar myth. Again, their god, Marduk, tricks his dad of being king, then goes and kills his grandmother and divides her up and makes the world out of her body. And then they make humans out of his dead family tree relative, who I'll figure out later, his blood. They make humans to basically do the farming for them because, well, if you could get someone else to grow all your stuff for you, <laughs> I think you would. So humans are here now to farm and to worship them. And if they stop, then we get floods and lightning bolts and terrible plagues and bad things because the gods get hungry and... The gods have a really bad case of hangry. But Genesis is interesting. Not for what it says, but for what it doesn't say. There's this concept rabbis talk about uh, that all of the Torah, the first, the, what we would call the Old Testament, the Pentateuch is the first five, I think. Oh, is the Torah the same? Okay. Genesis is in the Torah is sacred, including the missing things, the empty spaces between the letters. And Genesis has a great example of that empty space, because if you listened to that story and you read it again, you'll notice that there's one thing that compared to the other creation stories is missing. Nobody dies. 
There's no fighting. There's no blood. There's no action. It's almost G-rated. It's awful. This would not do well at the blockbuster. What makes it weirder is we know from later in the Old Testament, in Job, God's gotten into a few scuffles. He's fought this giant crocodile-like thing called Leviathan once. It's in Job, if you don't believe me. He's got, like, fire breath. Again, would have made a great seller at the time. But, no, we cut, that scene got cut. There's none, none of that. In fact, the closest we get to violence is when he separates, when God separates the waters. And it's doubly interesting because the Hebrew word for that, tehom, is the Hebrew word for Marduk's grandma that he also... Um, separated to make the earth. But where Marduk is celebrating this violent victory that establishes his authority and his later subjugation of the world, in Genesis, it's the one time God doesn't say it was good at the end of the day. It's the one time in the whole seven days that God does not look upon creation and say it is good. And I think there's a lot to that. I think it's interesting because it implies that God doesn't like uncreative days. And I don't mean uncreative as in days that are boring. I mean uncreative in that he spends one day simply separating. And without anything new there, it's not finished for God. It's not good yet. We know God's okay with separations and differences because... We get all the types of animals. They crawl, they walk, they're domesticated. We get the types of trees. They have seeds on the inside, they don't. We know that God seems to enjoy the great biodiversity of the world. But he seems to, as a creator, not enjoy it when there's none of it, if that makes sense. When there's nothing but division. When there's no land, there's nothing alive, it's just this emptiness that isn't filled yet. And I think that tells us that God's authority in the universe, and that will go on later, isn't rooted in violence and destruction. Although, if you've read later, there is plenty of violence and destruction. The Old Testament maintains some of that. But it's rooted more in this creative building. God doesn't lose anything when he makes the world. There's no sacrifice needed to bring forth life. And I think, one, I like that as a creative type, that I don't need to you know, kill my parents. I'm sure my parents like that I don't need to kill them in order to get a bestseller made. I assume so. Okay, I'm getting a nod. Good, good, all right. Um, but we see that later also in how he treats humans. One, in Genesis, humans are made all at once male and female, and personally I take that to mean all humans because Genesis only deals in dualities. There are points in the day where it's not day or night. We have the fancy word twilight for that period and for vampire romance novels. But he only makes day and night. So I assume, I'm sort of assuming that there is a respect that by saying man and woman, he means, or God means all of humanity. But he makes all of humanity at once undivided. Other myths at the time divide people into, you know, you have your farmers, your fighting people, and the guys that God likes because they're in charge. 
And you see this in Greece, Norse, Mesopotamia, India. It's like they all got together in one pantheon meeting and were like, okay, we like the guys with the best hats. And we second most like the guys with the pointy sticks. And the guys who make the food that is essential for our living go to the bottom. But Genesis is gone makes all of us at once all in his image and doesn't assign to humans the task of making him food or offering sacrifices. They're given sort of a watchfulness or a dominion, depending on your translation, or a stewardship, and then told to, like God, go and make stuff. Now, they're told to make, probably make babies when it says be fruitful and multiply, but I believe children are still stuff. There's still this impetus God has for others to engage in creative activities, to make new things. And that's not hopefulness. Um, and this beginning then tells us a lot about what we are today. The God we deal with who is with us now and who is in the New Testament isn't a God who uses violence and subjugation to justify the world. Violence isn't, in Genesis, some inimical part of creation that can never go away. Difference isn't something that's sort of an accident. And divisions socially aren't necessarily the sort of thing God put into the world baked in. And... I kind of like that as a Christian. I like the notion that the power that governs reality is a creative type. Now, I'm a writing major, so it really helps for my self-esteem to think that God is an artist. Because it means even if I can't get a job, I'm doing holy work. And that's what counts. <laughs> But as a person, I like to think that, you know, God likes diversity and multiplicity. And this, I think, makes, is why we have this story in the beginning. We could put Job. Job has a lot more of interesting beginnings. There's suffering and dealing with suffering and so on. But we begin with Genesis 1 because it tells us about the sort of God we're dealing with. A God who loves his creation for being created, for being new and different and full of life and vitality and diversity. That's a God I can get people on board with. It's a good plot hook. Thank you. Okay.